Hi guys, this is Max, and I just wanted to give a short introduction to the episode you're about to hear. As you will see, uh, the topic we discussed this week is apocalypticism um, from its roots in religious texts and movements down to the present day. How do these religious ideas shape the way we understand secular kinds of crises that might bring about the end of the world or civilization? etc. Now, what you have to know about this episode is that we recorded it on February 21st when we knew about the coronavirus, but we didn't quite expect it to bring about such a cataclysmic rupture, um, which is a huge crisis and is affecting us all in a very extreme way. So it would have been a great uh, example for us to discuss as a modern as a modern phenomena which people use apocalyptic ideas to understand, but we don't even mention it once. Uh, instead, we talk about climate change, which was at the time we thought the most direct and best example of an existential crisis, which people use apocalyptic thought or ideas to make sense of. So uh, I still think it is a very interesting conversation to have, and it should be interesting for you to hear um, the history of how these religious ideas became secular ideas, and there will still be lots of echoes that you'll recognize in it having to do with the current corona, COVID-19 crisis. So I hope you listen and enjoy. Um, send us your questions, literally everythingpod at gmail.com. And I imagine that we will be doing a follow-up episode where we discuss apocalypticism in light of recent events. Um, so yeah, that's all I have to say for now. Enjoy the episode, and we will see you again soon. Roll up a blood, light, light up the green. As red as I'm on permethazine. Roll up another one, dip in the scissor. God, let this work. All right. Yeah. Hopefully it will. Are you hearing? Are mm. you hearing me? Okay. You you sound you sound great. All right, man. So the topic today is going to be apocalypticism. So what we I think we were like we met last week. You were up in the Bay Area, and we we're talking about topics, and somehow it came up. Yeah, this idea of how should I put this? I don't know. Maybe it's I should. The end I, of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Yes, so Ethan, do you think... They can't sue you if you don't sing the melody. I'm just saying (laughs) words. Yeah, well, we could do a parody. I just picked a bunch of random words from the dictionary, and those were the ones I said. Yeah. So Ethan, I mean, do you think... Would you say that we live in a period where people are particularly interested, frightened by, hopeful about the end of the world or the apocalypse? Would you say that's true? Yeah, o- overwhelmingly true. And I think the the Trump era helped uh, universalize that sentiment because I think it's been sort of a staple of the American right or certain parts of the, the Christian American right for a long time, um, you know, that we're in this like Babylon sinful, you know, world. I don't know, maybe ever since like the hippies. I mean, yeah. but actually totally not. It goes back to like the fucking, what am I even saying? Like the Great Awakening in like the 17th century. Mm. But... Now with Trump, with the left, we get to take, 
I feel like the apocalypticism about climate change, we didn't have a good like like landscape for it under Obama because we're like, oh, but we're like supposed to be happy because it's like our guy's in charge. And yeah, they're obstructing him. But now it's like, oh, like, no, like our Antichrist is in charge. And this is the end of the world. And so all of our like the climate scare can get universalized to the rest of politics and society. Yeah, true. I mean, and I don't want to I don't want to bring up Red Scare every single episode of our podcast, but um, oh my God. It, it is your good friend one, is one of the hosts. Not good, but, like barely yeah, ever. Yeah. So there was an episode a while ago where there was an artist named Deanna Havis who was on it. She's a very provocative persona. And she said infamously that climate change is, quote, bourgeois eschatology. The idea that she was saying is that poor people don't care about that. They're thinking about the immediate future. And it's the privilege of well-off people to fantasize about the end of the world. And Has she ever heard of a place called Bangladesh? Yeah, no, I know. But I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, the point isn't to argue with her about the truth of climate change and whether climate change is really an existential crisis. It's always called an existential crisis. I mean, I I would, I, I think we both agree that it is, but I do think that there is an element of truth to what she was saying there in that the way in which you could say, yeah, well-off, educated, liberal to left-leaning people in this country think about and talk about climate change is shaped by traditions, texts, concepts that have been handed down to us, which which visualize, think about, and uh, discuss the end of the world. And that's apocalyptic literature, the idea of apocalypticism. As you were kind of mentioning, I mean, this is, you know, America is a country that has been shaped by a certain strand of Protestant Christianity, which is especially kind of susceptible to apocalyptic expectations. So there are all these kind of very, uh, let's say, enthusiastic these Christian stre- denominations. stretches of American history. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, you know, there's, um, sorry, I said the 17th, but it was like, there's the 18th century, mid 18th century, before, when we weren't even a country yet, there was the first great awakening with like Jonathan Edwards and sinners in the hand of an angry God, I think was that famous um, sermon, you know? Yeah. And then the 19th century, there was a second great awakening. And there's been these like, they, they seem to sort of, you know, have like a wave like structure of like beginning, middle and end. But these periods where strands of American Protestantism um, become very enraptured. And, and that's an interesting thing too. Like, they, like people think the rapture like is from the Bible. It's literally from a British Methodist preacher who came to the U.S to the US, I think in the 19th century, maybe maybe it was the 18th century, and spread this notion that there is this thing called the rapture and here's how it works. You know, it's, it's right. relatively recent, like the, a lot of theological invention um, that took root in American Protestantism. Yes, and I, what, I'm, what I mean to say is, I mean, we, we all know that there are like doomsday cults in America and then there are Christian denominations that, that really focus almost exclusively on the book of revelations and prophecies about the imminent um, apocalypse, second coming of Christ, rapture, all that kind of stuff, the left behind novels and movies based on the novels. We all know that. Um, But there is a very kind of substantial literature and tradition of thinking about the ways in which more secular kind of topics or forms of thought have been 
informed, influenced by the religious idea of apocalypse. And that's what we're going to discuss today is look at the origins of apocalyptic thought in antiquity, look at kind of the, the yeah, what, what those texts were all about, how they were transformed over time in throughout history in Europe and elsewhere, and how they kind of came down to us in a new kind of form and how they might possibly be shaping the way we understand a, a crisis like climate change. And so when you, and I, to qualify this, the we there, you're not saying like all people on earth or all Americans, you're saying the maybe like bourgeois, liberal, secular-ish people have been shaped by all these things that we're going to talk about. Is that correct? No, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily, I mean, yeah, to disagree with what they have. Not exclusively, I mean, not, but is that what you want to focus on? I don't think anyone can really escape the set of symbols and con- conceptual structures that we've been handed down. I do think that it, it influences all of us. So, I mean, I, I, I would say it's, it's everyone is influenced by these ideas and and you can see it by looking at various phenomena and like the way people talk about, you know, climate change, but also other I, other ways that people think other things that people think are existential crises, like like the political crisis we have in our country or like nuclear war earlier, things like that nuclear, during the Cold War, yes. nuclear war. So we're starting as broadly as just saying the frameworks that we bring to our our doomsday sentiments on the left, on the right, wherever are, you know, we're just going to be tracing some of the, their genealogies and then, and then applying them to climate change. Is that more or less? That's, yeah, saying? that's what I, that's what I would say. Yeah. And the idea for that I have, I mean, basically is that there's almost like a phenomenology of apocalypticism where it's like a certain way of looking at the world. It's a certain way of making sense of the world, making sense of the present historical moment in a way that uses like a different kind of rationality and a different kind of sense of time as well, a different sense of what history is all about. Um, and it's very much... Different than what? Different than the kind of mainstream, you could say, orthodoxy about that, that has to do with like, well, history is just, you know, one thing happens and then the next thing happens as a result. It's the idea of like a ru- an upcoming rupture that's going to either, you know, destroy everything or redeem everything. You know what I mean? So you, uh, where I lost you was like you were saying the mainstream, like there, there's a some mainstream conception of how time works, and then apocalypticism is a break or an alternative from that. Like it's not necessarily so much like mainstream. Maybe that's not the best way of putting it. It's more like normality, like the 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 way like the everyday kind of reality that we live in, where it's like one day after another, events happen. There might be some kind of structure to it but it's mostly invisible and it's the expectation that something is going to change radically very soon and everything like all the kind of underlying structures that are maybe invisible are going to become visible in a way through this huge rupture that either is going to be disastrous catastrophic going to end humanity or it's something that's going to you know from from the ashes of the previous historical era a new and better kind of society is going to emerge right mhm okay and and would you say that def- that broad definition applies to the old and the you know like kind of all apocalypticism yeah, I mean, it, so like I'll be talking a little bit about um, a book by a sociologist called John R. Hall. From he's a professor emeritus in the Department of Sociology at UC Davis. He wrote a book called Apocalypse, 
which is really about like a whole uh, bringing together the entire history of apocalyptic thought up to the present day at wow. his time, which was you know about ten years ago. But that took and, him a long amount of yeah, effort. Yeah, yeah, and uh, his thing is all about is all about time is, is all about you know different kind of temporalities that give social meaning. It's it's a very complicated kind of system that he sets up. He's like a sociologist, so it gets all schematic and stuff. But <laughs> it's about a different kind of it's a it's about a different kind of understanding of history where it's not just like diachronic like there are trends, you know, or cycles or whatever. It's about an expectation of something that's like radically different in the future and using that to shape your actions. Um, and obviously there are all sorts of ways in which that those kinds of expectations can be seen in like the sec in secular contexts, and it's not just you know, so it's not just you know like radical like Christian sects or something like that, some like really out there religious people. But well, like wouldn't I mean Marxism would wouldn't that be like a really yeah? So that's one of the main example. that's like one of the main examples. So the idea that he well we we're gonna get into it. Why don't we like start out by talking a little bit about where apocalypticism comes from, where these terms even come from? So like. The, the, the first thing we should set out is that, you know, apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic ideas started out in in the Jewish community after the Babylonian exile. And I think you have something to say about that because you've read quite a bit about those those kinds of texts. That, yeah. that period and that genre. Yeah. So, yeah, just a few like um, clarifications of, of terms. You, earlier you mentioned bourgeois eschatology. So the proper term for the end of the world or or the you know thought about the end of the world is eschatology the eschaton is is the end period by the way there's a, a character in westworld who is like one of the robots is named like eschaton or something so uh, a, an apocalypse actually just means like a visual revelation so the early apoc um, jewish apocalypse literature is they're thinking uh, 2nd century BC, um, probably based on earlier traditions. This is when the Jewish-Israelite um, population has returned from Babylon to uh, a nominal... It's not even sovereign. It's just like they're in um, what had been the provinces of Judea, you know, what later the Romans called Palestine. But they are ruled by the Persian em Empire. And many of the prophecies that had been uttered, you could say, like on, in the lead up to the Babylonian exile, foresaw the Jews returning and regaining sovereignty and things being like a lot more glorious. And here they, they did come back from Babylon, but not with um, political power or a king or any of those kinds of trappings, and certainly not with like the Messiah, like a, an end of time Messiah. And so in that context... A genre of literature developed that was a genre of of um, these visions that were referred to by this Greek term apocalypse of like revelations. Yeah, and some of those genres dealt with eschatology, uh, or some of those uh, pieces of literature, but many of them actually dealt with tours, like tours of heaven, basically, or of the celestial realms. Mm. And part of the reason that we associate the, the term apocalypse came to mean like the end of the world is because the the book of Daniel specifically Daniel chapter 4 which 
had you know at this point there is not yet a closed canon of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. But ultimately, the book of Daniel has an apocalyptic vision that is about the end of times, and that makes it into the canon. And this other uh, apocalyptic vision, which may have been contemporary, they used to think it was not as old as Daniel. Now they think it might have even been older, which is called the book of Enoch or uh, Anoch in Hebrew, is about this biblical figure from the ver- from like he's the great grandfather of Noah. His name's Anoch, and he is taken on this tour of the cosmos and where the sun comes from and where the thunder comes from and where the angels live and all this stuff that's kind of in this world beyond. So, and that was actually maybe more of what the genre was about, these revelations of the, of the other world and its, you know, organization, its physical organization, like literally like where's the gate, where's the key to the gate to this like realm of heaven, you know? Mm. But, but uh, Daniel and then in the New Testament, as you mentioned, the book of Revelation, those were apocalyptic visions that were about an end, end times thing. Um, yeah, I can I could say more, but maybe that helps get us rolling a little. Yeah, bit. for sure. So I mean, that was my understanding of it is that because the yeah what we call the Book of Revelations is called Apocalypse in the original Greek, right? Because it was a revelation, but then the Greek not word not because apocaly- it was about the world ending, right? Because it's called yeah, it's translated as Revelations into English, but then you know, the Greek word originally became became associated with visions of the end times, the second coming of Christ, um, all these different kinds of th- things that he, that John of Patmos mentioned in the visions he was having. Absolutely. So, and that gets to a key point. So like, yeah, as you were saying, and I, I've heard, I've heard this idea a lot. So that this is pretty much uh, accepted, like apocalyptic thought began because the Hebrews or Jews, you know, the, the proper term for this period is like, uh, it's, it's right at the cusp of when their contemporaries start referring to them as, as uh, Udeismos and not um, Israelites. So, but you could say he, Israelites or Jews. Yeah. Not that, it, right. not that I'm, you know. Right. It's hard to, yeah. Splitting yeah. hairs. Whatever you want to call them. So they, you know, before, before the Babylonian exile, like, the Jewish or the Israelite God was like understood mainly to be like a national God, right? And you, they were supposed to remain faithful to him, not worship gods from, you know, strangers or, or other communities around them. And also not to, you know, make alliances or become, you know, become too close with other neighboring countries. And then, you know, after the after the Babylonian exile, they were redeemed or whatever, you know, released by the Persian Empire. But they found themselves under the um, under the thumb of, you know, these ecumenical, huge multinational Sassian. empires. Yeah. Right. And so the loss of national identity or national sovereignty led them to imagine uh, a kind of redemption that wouldn't happen in what you would think of as normal historical time, but in a kind of end time thing. And, and the God of the Israelites become, becomes, in that sense, a kind of God of the entire cosmos rather than a God of a certain people. I mean, do you accept that? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what's... Uh, most yeah. of it. I, Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think that you know, there's art, the... I think you're making a little too hard of a distinction between they believe that he was their national God, but that he, he was also this like, um, you, you know, sole unitary creator God. Yeah, sure. Okay. okay. So, yeah. uh, it, it, but 
you're correct in saying that um, that the bond, the national bond, the national tie to God consists of this covenant and these promises where like, if they observe his commandments and do what his prophets tell them, um, there are certain things that like good things will happen to the national fate. Yeah. Right. And that's what I mean. And that's what like faith originally meant was like keeping faith with him, not, not, you know, worshiping other gods. It wasn't to do with believing in, in some kind of, yeah cosmological truth you know what i mean yeah yeah i mean i think it's also like a little bit i think it's a little both but but that's an important point to emphasize and i mean the thing to also emphasize is that the the prophets the ones that are canonized in the hebrew bible your isaiah's and amos and ezekiel and all that so much of that was and and by the way i should cite here my um, mentor my teacher in this was is a scholar of uh, late antiquity late antiquity uh, named Ranan Bustan, who's at Princeton now, but he was at UCLA and he was explaining how, you know, the, the prophets, capital P, were supposed to bring the, com- the human community to, to God and convey God's instructions for proper behavior, you know, rebuke the people if they strayed from proper behavior or rebuke the leadership or whatever. And so that all works if they if they sort of have this sovereign polity where there is a king to rebuke if he goes bad. But when there's no when they're not even quite in charge of their destiny politically, it's hard to like assess whether the promises are being kept or not. Kind of on either side, and so they're also just separate track though is an interest that is goes back to the Hebrew Bible in astronomy, astrology. This you could say like the science of the universe. You know, what is the fate of individuals after they die? Things that you could only kind of speculate, speculative knowledge, you, you might say. Yeah. And that was in a lot of the wisdom literature texts, like Job has a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, G- Genesis has, you know, hints of this. And so what a lot of this literature was doing was like a little bit of a shift from, from the prophetic mode of here's what you do to the, well, we're, we're still trying to do whatever we were told to do, but we don't we no longer expect like uh, immediate returns on that. And so there was a shift in interest maybe to the, the, the horizon, to these more existential horizons. One of those questions, not the only question is what happens when time is over, you know, mm-hmm. and what will happen to these reigning kingdoms on earth when time is over? Yes. And that, that's what Daniel takes up. That's what, there's a book called For Ezra that um, the Catholics um, kept in there. Um, canonization of the Bible, but um, the Jews and Protestants didn't uh, don't include it in, in our Bibles. But it's from the same period, and and so it's important to say so that so then it, it, from this context emerges Christianity, right? And like he was very gra- gradually, we should say, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, the, I mean, but what I mean, like Jesus, his career, the things he said, the Gospels, all those, all the kind of stuff that emerges from this context like where people are thinking about that uh, about the world in that kind of way right and like in judea or palestine of you know the time of of jesus's life there were different kind of communities or, or ways of uh of behaving that were directed or informed by ideas about the apocalypse like you know essenes who withdrew from the world and tried to create kind of sanctified communities um that would kind of represent the expected future sanctified kingdom of Israel or zealots who would try to bring about 
the reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel through violent means. So all these kind of ideas were out there. And then Jesus comes along and kind of centers that idea. And so like the idea of the apocalypse becomes central and much more universal through the medium of Christianity. You all know like the famous, all these famous passages from the New Testament where he's saying, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. So like, what does that mean? Is it in the world to come? Is it going to be in heaven? All this kind of stuff. So all these questions are opened and and like getting into heaven and and like yeah exactly so is it, as as, a, as like a concrete place which is much not quite as developed in in the pre existing Jewish literature yes and also he said repeatedly you know that's the whole point that was his whole point was look the world is about to end that's why you need to repent um, and so he taught his followers and his followers mostly believed that they were going to see the end of the world happen in their lifetimes and they would constantly say it's going to come you know it's going to come like a thief in the night meaning quickly and unexpectedly and so that was the kind of mindset that they had that was the way they understood historical time was that it was coming to an end and that is the context for most of the you know most important texts of early christianity um and the new testament so wait can i just make uh Two more small points on on the ancient religion before we come to the present. Go for it. I mean, so it may seem like there's a, a lot of continuity. For, I mean, because Christianity became this universal religion, we read, even Jews, we all read the, the Hebrew Bible and these other texts that were from the same period but didn't make it in, which are called um, pseudophigria. We, uh, we read them as like almost like inevitably leading to this Christian viewpoint of like, Heaven is, you know, everything Max just said. But um, what's actually interesting is, for example, in that in that apocalyptic text I was talking about, um, Anoch, which is this, or Enoch, actually was found among the Essenes in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was one of our oldest texts uh, of apocalyptic literature was preserved by the Essenes. Mm -hmm. It's actually really big in the Ethiopian church um, as well. And it's told in the name... Um, uh, Pseudofigria is like, it says that this is the journey of um, this guy Enoch, who was Noah's great-grandfather. Yet, even if Noah existed along some sort of timeline that sort of, if, we, if like they literalize the timeline of the Hebrew Bible, that Enoch guy would have lived like over a thousand years, almost like 1,500, 2,000 years before this text. And what that is to say is that in the in the Jewish tradition, there was this thing of, the author of the text wouldn't say, hey, I'm Max Daly. I, I had this vision. Here's what happened to me. He would claim to have found a text that was by a, a very long dead and revered um, ancestor, maybe Abraham in some of the texts, you know, uh -huh. who had gone on these like celestial journeys. And Enoch is, is chosen because it says in like Genesis, like whatever, I think it's like in the fifth chapter that he walked with God and he didn't die. God just like took him up. Un, like unto himself and yet those so this text they have a lot of distancing mechanisms it's like it's not from now it's from this it's from this ancestor and he goes up there but even when he's up there he's sort of rebuked for the things he's not really allowed to look at things even the angels can't see things and when the a big innovation both of jesus and then also of some of uh, paul's uh, apocalyptic visions which I believe he has in, in Corinthians 12, 
is they're saying that they themselves saw it. They themselves in the present went to heaven or were taken to heaven and were shown around or given this message for the present. You know, it's not just this is the nature of the universe and this is going to happen in some long awaited future, but this is, you know, kind of uh, hot off the presses. And that's a huge change in the genre. Um, yeah, but I would say, I mean, yes, that's that's absolutely true, but it's not like they uh, necessarily invented it. I think that there were lots of charismatic preacher types going around in Palestine around the time of Jesus and preaching that, you know, the end of the world was nigh. And But I'm, I'm, I'm particularly talking about the apocalyptic visions. Like that, people were preaching the eschaton, and, and, and I think you're right too, but I think that I'm just saying that what's, what's noteworthy about Christianity is it's, it, Paul says that he himself had this vision that's very different than the apocalyptic literature of two or three centuries earlier, which is, you know, kind of like meant to be like this ancient tradition from long, from like, you know, the mists of early time, you know? Fair enough. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, yeah, but so anyways, like... To get to to kind of press fast forward a little bit, um, Christianity yeah, it, go- it, it does relate to the present, but we'll, I'll, yeah. I'll bring that up in the present. Chris- yeah. Christianity goes through a number of transformations, um, all the while the end of the world is not happening. So the ecumenical councils happen over the next few years, where uh, orthodoxy is articulated and contested. Christ, Christ, by, by which way, let me just... So, Christian, sorry. yes, when, we're talking about Christianity now, so so, so we have less, left Judaism but not Greek behind Orthodox for, the, also. for the time being. Um, but yes, so, so Christian Orthodoxy is defined by the ecumenical councils. It becomes, uh, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire, right? And then... Um, this is the fourth century, and this is happening mostly in the Eastern Mediterranean, just to situate this, you yes. know, like... Yeah, exactly. So all the ecumenical councils that you read about, those are mostly pla- in places that are now in, in modern-day Turkey. So in any case, Greek-speaking, yeah, Eastern Mediterranean. So the important turning point, I think, within Christianity is um, Augustine. So he's right at, he wrote the, the City of God, um, right after the sack of Rome, when people were saying, pagan critics of Christianity were saying, look, Rome... This is now the 5th century, and he's in the Roman Empire, so we've moved west also. Right. Okay. So so pagan critics are saying, look, you have um, abandoned the gods of Rome, the pagan gods of Rome, who, you know, traditionally you sacrificed to them, and they protected the city, and now you, you abandoned them for this god... Uh, this Christian God, and you got fucked up, right? And so what does that say? So he's defending Christianity against that. And the important thing... It's not our fault. The important thing about Augustine... So he's saying the city of God is something like the elect group of people who are godly and sanctified and all that. That's a a, a city that it exists, but it's invisible um, in history, right? And so the idea is that he articulates an, an idea about the end of the world, which is saying that we don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, it's not really useful to expect that it's going to happen. And it's also not useful to do this kind of thing where, it, and, and this is very common in apocalyptic movements um, or groups you see all the time, this idea of saying, well, the, the, the end of the world is about to happen. The, the sanctified, the saintly people are going to be reigning supreme and glorified after the end of the world. 
So we're going to form communities which only the, the sanctified are allowed, only the elect are allowed in. He's saying, no, don't do that. The church is something, the church is like the agent of that in history, right? And so the church is the, a community which exists kind of in expectation of the godly kingdom that's going to that's going to exist in the world to come and so he so so the kind of augustinian position the church becoming the catholic yeah church. the important yes yes the church yes in in the in the fifth century there was one church um the catholic and orthodox church universal and orthodox church uh, when did the orthodox um break later up? Uh, or like it happened okay. over time, but in the in the medieval era. So later, bro. Yeah. So, anyways, the point being, you know, don't worry about all of that if it doesn't make sense. But he is saying, and this became the official position of you know the Catholic Church, and um, you know, so so basically, Western Christianity is to say we don't know when the apocalypse is going to happen. It, that's not the point of Christianity is to like expect it to happen. You know in the next, in our generation, it, it kind of put it off and said, this is going to happen later on. And so basically apocalyptic and ideas. And go off and form crazy cults. Yes, exactly. So he was writing City of God, especially against the Donatists, who were people who said, who said that the church should only allow, only allow basically sanctified people in it. It shouldn't allow I don't want to get into donatism. It doesn't donatism. It doesn't matter. But the, yeah, but the point like, is, like the the church can embrace all Christians. It's not necessarily the city. It's not the same thing as the city of God. The city of God is invisible, but it it plays that role in his in history of preparing and nurturing, like preparing for the end of the world, and also like nurturing and sustaining the city of God until you know the time comes, which will happen. We don't know when. So. So that was, you know, for the rest, uh, you know, up until the the Protestant Reformation, let's say, for the most part, like mainstream Christians didn't didn't focus too much on apocalypticism, um, except for the Crusades. But we'll like put that in brackets. Yeah, yeah. So so the apocalypse, the idea of the end of the world, the idea, especially of yeah, a kind of climactic conflict between forces of good and evil. We didn't talk about the influence of Zoroastrianism. So there's this idea, and I don't want to get into it too much, but like the idea that Persian Zoroastrianism, which is a dualist uh, religion, influenced Judaism somehow into having these ideas about like climatic, climactic battles between the forces of good and evil as forming the kind of centerpiece of the end of the world. Um, but in any case, these things kind of come back over and over again in the Reformation, they come back in a big way because Protestants think of the Catholic Church and the Pope in particular as like the Antichrist, so this apocalyptic figure. So uh, it comes back, but nonetheless, the, there's various kind of phenomena which I could get into. I'm not, I'm not going to. I mean, I've I've done some research. You read a paper that I wrote about like a, a number of of apocalyptic movements in early modern Europe. Uh, there were lots of them. But they were all they all tended to be like not mainstream, right? So they were marginal in some ways. Like it. Can I ask w w one question about yeah, them? Go though ahead. I I think this is interesting in its own right. So Luther, you know, c comes I think to at the end be in in an, in an apocalyptic mode. But like, how do they decide? So say that's you know the fifteen. I don't know, I'm. 50. I don't know if that he was dead yet, but like whatever. That that pope in that moment is the Antichrist and not any... If, if, Catholic, if Catholicism was like bullshit and heresy, according to them, 
wasn't it, wouldn't it have been heresy the whole time? And wouldn't every pope kind of be a candidate for being Antichrist? That's a good question. I don't really know. But I mean, I think that the whole part of the apocalyptic mode is, you know, the, the phenomenology of it is like you become a hammer in search of nails. So everything becomes a portent of the end times. And it's really easy if you're looking for Antichrist to find to find basically signs. Like, you know, people thought that Mikhail, you know, Christians thought Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist in the 80s because, because tight, he like, was because of his port wine uh, stain control. on his head. Yeah. So, I mean, so like, well, yeah, I mean, I mean go ahead. I was just going to say, part of the reason I ask is because, again, it has to do with this thing of it's one thing to speculate and think about the end of times. That's already like not necessarily a default stance, right? To be interested in that is already like a, an interesting mode. And then to think that it is now, that's like a second move, right? Which isn't just to say like, hey, part of our religion is, is, is to tell you what happens when it, all this shit's over, but to say that like, this pope is the antichrist or this like soviet leader is the antichrist or barack obama is the antichrist so the like situating of it in the present as opposed to in some unknown horizon you know yeah exactly and so i think that that's a good there's something kind of particularly protestant to that i think we should maybe seed that idea yeah sure and i think that that's a good segue into the idea of a secularized um apocalypticism which is you know it starts, people would say, I mean, gen, the general idea is it, it kind of begins in the Ang- English Revolution and is more or less completed in the French Revolution, where they fully un- articulated in secular terms an apocalyptic confrontation and rupture in history, right, where a new world is being created and it, that it's necessary to have this bloodshed. So the Great Terror is obviously a key episode within this kind of secular apocalypse where it's necessary to, you know, guillotine thousands of, of people, enemies of the revolution publicly in order to kind of bring about this new, uh, you know, kingdom to come or, you know, republic in, in the case of the French Revolution. So that's the idea, basically, in, in, in simple terms. That in, in the modern times, there are all these ideas like, you know, Marxism is, is a famous one, but um, there's, there's tons of other examples where... If there's revolutionary expectation, the idea that we are living in extraordinary times where the where you know the crisis is so bad that everything is going to fall apart and it's on us to participate in a great struggle between the forces of good and evil, whether that's you know Republicans versus the Ancien Regime in France or the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie in Marxism, these are basically eschatological ideas, and it, it has to do with, with what you're saying. It's, it's taking speculation about what, you know, like a utopian kind of speculation about what would be a, a better society to live in, and putting it, taking it from this realm of speculation into the future of, of historical time, and there's a necessity for some kind of radical, radical kind of catastrophic uh, event to, to 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 kind of catalyze yeah, that to, to produce that kind of discontinuity yeah. that's that's that that's needed to destroy the world that exists now as a currently so yeah let, let me um say one thing or something that i think is interesting so uh walter benjamin a german jewish marxist critic right. i was reading about in, this yeah to prepare yeah and so in, he has a, a series of short little fragments called Theses on the Philosophy of History. Mm-hmm. And he points out that the 
the revolution, I, I don't know if this is in the, the French Revolution or the one in the 1830s, but that they shot at clocks. Really? They want to <laughs> literally like aim their like, you know, muskets at the clocks to, in, to indicate this time is over. And in the 1790s, during the, the first main French Revolution, they did initially propose a different calendar. It wasn't going to be a seven day week. They had this like 10 day week. You know that was going to be yeah. Kind I mean, of they had a year one. I mean, like and, all the calendars that are in use in the world have year ones based on, or most of them do have year ones that are based on like religious events, right? And so they're like, we're replacing that with a new year one. With a new year one, and the um, uh, in the Soviet Union had they also tried to sort of change the the, the day. They had like this like shifting schedule where like everyone everyone had a different Monday. This was during like early Stalinism. Mm. Like, so if you had like a pink card, your Monday is Monday. But if you have like an orange one, your Monday is on Wednesday. And so therefore everyone has like weekends on different times. They thought if they broke bourgeois time, like just like, you know, shattered it into new pieces, they would also be breaking the power relations or, you know, whatever, you know, so there's something not just about like time as this like long string that the string runs out, but like, like actually kind of changing the you know structure of this of the string itself absolutely yes i think that's yeah that's interesting yeah it is and and just to get through this yeah secularized eschatology of modernity like this is a very widespread idea i don't think what we're saying here is like contentious at all the idea that these modern movements have some kind of resemblance to apocalypticism or eschatology um it's people have argued that from left-wing Marxists to liberals to reactionaries who are using it as a criticism of, say, Marxism to say it's like a simulacrum of religion that is deficient in some ways. And I think it's a tough case to... with liberals, though, because their whole thing is like gradual, not right. You know, yeah. Like... I mean, I guess they would have something in common with the reactionaries to say like, yeah, Marxism is just I mean, that's what liberals would say right marxism oh it's just like religion these people believe in some pie in the sky ideas yeah yeah no but i mean but i also mean in the sense that well liberalism has it's it's a little bit of like the what it shares maybe with this tradition is it's very implicit though it's it's not explicit like in the cases that we've been discussing is that the enlightenment was the dawn of a new era if, if you will it was another year zero just like christ's birth was a year zero like the Enlightenment as a period uh, inaugurates a new dawn of of um, of time in in which like we're going to relate to the world in this different way, um, and it's freed from all these you could say heresies of pre modern time. Mm. Um, you know, and those heresies are actually you know religious belief, superstition, whatever you know, illiberal thought, which is why. One thing that liberal people say to people who they think are observing religion, you know, like that's why to call someone medieval is in a way, you know, or or they're barbaric is to say like, you're from the, you're acting like it's early times. You're acting in a pre-modern way. And that's um, yeah. in the liberal sense, heretical. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, uh, yeah, the, the, and the liberal, we could say mainstream, whatever you want to call it notion is is almost that we're living in the post apocalypse apocalypse times but in a good way you know what i mean like so yeah. so science and reason, reason triumphed and now we're in this grad gradual technological social political 
progress era and everything's going to be okay. Um, so there's been various articulations of that idea. You know, famously, Francis Fukuyama's uh, End of History made that argument more or less. I think it's more complicated than than what people give him credit for. But in any case, um, <laughs> that that is the kind of that is the 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 way it's discussed in, in mainstream terms. And I do think that fascination with the end of the world in various ways, not just climate change. Now, climate change is a different thing because it is, you know, so obviously like a real crisis. But thinking about the end of the world apocalyptically in a secular context has been associated, I would say, with the counterculture, broadly speaking, um, over the past oh, few yeah. decades. So it is, it, is, yeah. it, it is in a way, I mean, this is something that I always thought, I want to go back actually to your idea about, well, well, what is it about the idea of thinking that it's your generation or your period that's going to be the, the generation that sees the end of the world? I do think that even if you fear the end of the world, even if you think the end of the world is a bad thing, not like expecting it's going to have some kind of good outcome, um, which a lot of people do, there is a kind of narcissism to that, which I think is just kind of, it makes sense that people would want to t want to inhabit, you know, uh, uh, a special, extraordinary time. So that's why you can take portents, take signs. This is a sign, and take any kind of historical event and invest it with with a with an additional meaning and drama, um, because you it makes it it's natural to want to be part of an extraordinary time. So I would say that um, is something that drives yeah, a lot of this kind like, of thought. You know what I mean? Yeah, and for sure, I think. And, you know, and, and it's interesting to say, like, you know, narcissism is kind of like a universal human quality. Yeah. But like, and so you could say, oh, like every generation is going to do that. And we wouldn't be the first to observe, right, that many generations have said, oh, it's never been worse than now. You yeah, know, absolutely. But it, I think it's interesting to call attention to certain cultural specifics. And I was just thinking, I actually want to like go back and say the thing we were saying about liberalism, that it's post-apocalyptic. I would actually, I think a better model is maybe like look at Islam, where Islam doesn't say that Muhammad came and now the world has ended and we're in the afterlife at all. All Islam says is that there, the, the era before Muhammad announces the oneness of God to the Arabs and, and through them to the, to the rest of the world is called Jahaliyyah, the era of ignorance. Mm -hmm. And once Muhammad comes... Is like now you have the information, and <laughs> now you know what you need to know. There is one God, um, and you should worship Him. And that's I feel like maybe a better analog to the liberal thing, which is that there's like an era, there's like a pre-era and a current era. But I think it it dispenses with maybe the idea of an afterlife. Everything is 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 it makes everything immanent, Im imminent, imminent yeah. with an A, yeah. not an I, and and. Right, that was Where, a, that and, was a term that I had in there, immanentizing the eschaton, which is um, which is comes from Eric Vogel, and he 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 said basically immanentizing the eschaton, meaning you, you take um, eschatological ideas, which are supposed to happen after history ends, right? So God is going to come back and just totally, you know, get rid of all the laws. Hook of up history. good people with good yeah. shit, like punish. So bad everything's people. going to be different. But instead, now what we get do now what we do is we, we think about the end of the world without that transcendent cause of it. And that it's gonna it's going to happen as a result of imminent forces in the world. So that was his his critique of 
you know, all sorts of modern movements, including fascism and also and also communism. So he was he was a conservative, actually. But oh, so he was saying I, that they were like kind of too modern, that they were too Im- imminent. Yeah, that they were too imminent. That well, he his his idea, and it's, it's I don't want to get into it too much, but that like Western society was just doomed by the Gnostic this kind of contagion of Gnosticism and go, going back. First, he said it went back to Joachim of Fiore, who was a medieval apocalyptic thinker. But then he, he decided it went all the way back to the ecumenical era, like the roots of Judaism and Christianity. Doesn't matter. Uh, we can talk about that more. Max is all about uh, keeping us on uh, on track for yeah, the, well, the, we've lin- been the linear for time apocalypse. Already. And so, so yeah. 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 Um, so, it, so in any case, but what I wanted to say was that like, yeah, so, so liberalism, the idea of gradually, I don't know if liberalism is the best word. Cause it just sounds like we're going like, Oh, libs, like dumb libs. That's not what I want to say. Yeah. Oh, I'm not. That's yeah, like, that's, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that either, but it's the easiest kind of shorthand for what we're talking about. But the idea of like gradual progress and things getting better and better over not time. waiting for something trans- transcendental from beyond to come and intervene and break this time, this time we have everything we need, we have our minds, we have reason, and with that we can develop science through observation, and that can guide us toward, you know, good technocratic policies like recycling. Yeah, and that denies, so it denies the impulse to think about radically different ways of living, or to think, uh, uh, yeah, to to think about radically different ways of living, and, and I think that that's what attracts people, or is seductive about um, end of the world scenarios, even if they entail, you know, massive human suffering, because they think this is the only way to radically change the world. I mean, I remember like a, 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 a guy I knew said, you know, in the midst of the economic crisis of 2008, that he kind of hoped the whole system fell fell apart. Um, yeah, and, and there was some kind of catastrophe, uh, so that something better could could emerge from it. Um, and I, and I understand that's like probably many people felt that way, but maybe in a more systematic or like informed kind of way. But to me, I was kind of struck by that because there was a kind of indifference to the human toll of that radical collapse and then emergence of a better, better system afterward. And, and that was to me recognizably apocalyptic in its, and it, it, but in a very kind of almost naive, yeah. like, just intuitive um, way. And so I do think there's something very intuitive, even though it's coming down to us and it's like w- the way we think about the world is, is structured by all these kind of concepts that shape the way we think. But it's also like a very, so to the point where it becomes very intuitive. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so I don't, I, I think, I don't know. I would argue again that like, and so a, a book that I that has had a huge influence on me in the last few years, it's um, not an academic book, although it's very well, extremely well-researched and footnoted and stuff, is Fantasyland by Kurt Anderson. And with that book, basically, I, I, I won't talk about like what that book is about, like how America went haywire, a 500-year history. But it's basically, I mean, he's an ext- like very, very secular guy. He's, he's not to the extent of like, you know, Richard Dawkins type shit, but like he basically looks at American history. He retells the story that we all heard from kindergarten through 12th grade, all the fucking things you heard and all the things you didn't hear, but through the lens of fantastical beliefs. And he lays a very strong case that the origin, that there's a uniquely American strain of, of Protestant thinking. It is very much, it's, it's very much, 
um, against what you might call the sort of deist Protestantism, against the, you know, the Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, let's have a constitutional convention and hammer out the rules and it's kind of on us, which is a very, I think, high enlightenment mode. This mode is very, is pass in a certain sense, passively awaiting, you know, some, something from on high that's going to shake everything up. And the other thing he does in the book is he shows that even though this begins almost exclusively as a, a Christian religious thing, by the mid 20th century, it's happening on the counterculture as well. And he, he sees a symmetry between the counterculture in the 60s and 70s and 80s and the rise of cults and the rise of doomsday cults and like all kind of weird Charlie Manson shit yeah. and, and the re-rise of the evangelical movement, you know, kind of culminating in the 80s with the Christian coalition really becoming a political force. And it, that's thoroughly convincing to me. And um, for the sake of time, I won't go through his evidence, but I, I strongly recommend the book because um, you, he even talks about there was this like night where it was like new agey people and weird ass Christian people surrounded the Pentagon during the Vietnam War at night uh, with holding hands, trying to do an exorcism where they were going to make it levitate off the ground to cast the demons out of it, okay. you know? Yeah. No, so that's, that, that makes total sense. So hand in hand, in hand the, ca- the counterculture and the crazy Christians, I think... Yeah. And it does... I think you, you've touched on something. It comes from the dissatisfaction or just that the, 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 the liberal model of this without, it, with, without transcendence is really um, doesn't give you enough. Yeah, um, and and so that's what that's what that's a really important point that that I would like to say. So so there are like when we talk about Christianity, you know, there are different, there are multiple strands within it, and they don't all make sense or agree with one another. So there is the orthodox course, strands, yeah. which is saying that you know don't, that the apocalypse is not imminent, and then there's a counter strands which often emerges in marginalized communities among the poor. Uh, especially, or, you know, regional minorities, things like that. My guy Bustan would, would dispute this, but go on, yeah. I mean, That's it, where it emerges. It, okay. I think it speaks in their name more than it emerges from them, actually. It emerges but. periodically and notably within marginalized communities or, like, dis, you know, not privileged communities, but not, not exclusively, right? It's not like... So the, the point is, yeah, apocalypticism isn't just... A religious form of com- of proto communism, which is a, what some people kind of have seen it as. I, I I agree with you that that's not the right way of putting it, but the the idea is mainly oh, that there's yeah. like multiple strands within this tradition which operate counter sure. to each other at certain times, and there's this kind of underground strand of apocalypticism that emerges at certain points. That dynamic is recapitulated in the mo- in modern secular. In the modern secular worldview, where there is a mainstream, you could say orthodoxy, and there's an idea of like the way things are, are given, like there's no kind of way of imagining a way out of the world as it is, as such. And that, so then you go on Twitter and you talk about burning, like you'd be an asshole, and that's, that's the <laughs> no, but so, 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 but then like there is a counterculture to that, and like the counterculture is more. Um, attracted to ideas about the end of the world because it allows you. Like, let me read a. Let me read this qu- this quote from John Hall, which explains something. Uh, explains what I'm trying to say. So, like, apocalypse as disclosure, 
right? So like revelation, it, it reveals things that, you, that are unseen. It may unveil aspects of the human condition or present historical moments that pierce the protective screen. Previously taken for granted understandings of how things are break down. Historically, new possibilities are revealed. So awesome as to foster collective belief that life as we know it has been transgressed, never to be the same again. So you can see, you know, that it's kind of like apocalypticism functions, uh, apocalyptic thought, it's kind of like a handmaiden of ideology critique, saying, well, wait a second, like, the the ideas that we've been told, the way things are, that's not necessarily true, and maybe, and it's like taking the idea that the world could be totally different and placing it into historical time in this future that's going to happen after a, an apocalyptic rupture with the past, right? Um, that, I think that's one that's one form, formulation. C- can I offer an alternative formulation? Sure, and then let's talk about climate change. Okay. Well, I feel like we're, we're, we are. To, oh, and, okay. My thing is uh, is about climate change. Go for it. I was just gonna say there's been a lot of um, these like bourgeois climate change exasperation novels, like these novels. So one just came out um, called Weather by Jenny Ophill. Like literally just came out uh, in the last few weeks. Um, there was one I'm trying to remember that the uh, the New Yorker reviewed. I keep trying to look these things up, Max, but every time I look them up, like it screws up our sound. Okay. Um, this is a DIY podcast. Yeah. And where it's just like it's not looking for the political revolution to break you know the march of everyday time it's just sort of in a resigned way like you know fuck we like we live in a in a deep transcendentalized world or like um, a disenchanted world to use max weber's term in in the perspective of these novels uh it's not seeking uh, religion or transcendent meaning it's just saying we have the powers of observation and science. We've used those actually to destroy the world, but because those are only tools, all we can do about that destruction, that imminent with an eye end is observe it and be melancholic and be, you know, like kind of ennui. Um, the novel that whose title I'm, I'm trying to find is this novelist has written a few that are kind of like glib about eco-terrorists and, and environmental radicals, you know, mm. kind of like considers that possibility, but but dismisses it as ridiculous. Um, and so it, it's it's like, and I think that's like this new thing that's supposed to be how um, bourgeois, pe- bourgeois people are supposed to, and this is maybe where we go back to the Red Scare thing, um, which is there's, we're supposed to be like extremely aware of the climate change is fucking for sure going to end everything as we know it but we're just like feel paralyzed because there's nothing we can do and you know this is and kind of hate ourselves for that and maybe talk about not having kids or how can we have kids but then we have kids anyway you know not me you know because i'm fucking sticking to it yeah but, um uh, richard powers overstory is another one of these novels mm. um but i still haven't found the the one that i'm super thinking of yeah but yeah you could talk about the sensibility that i'm describing while I, yeah well that's it kind of sounds like don't look it up fatalism to me yeah and i do think that here's what i would say like the the apocalyptic it's very hot it's very hip right now though in in the in fiction yeah and i hadn't thought like of, fiction writers who are in their 30s and 40s like yeah yeah and i hadn't thought about the whole not having kids thing i i mean i have thought a lot about the idea of not having kids because of climate change I, i've noticed that i've read about it 
Um, and it is kind of interesting, the idea of like bringing about the end of humanity, like stopping having kids in order to prevent the end of humanity, like prevent the, the end of the world is, is, is... And a few humanities in order to not end all of humanity. Yeah, exactly. But it's also like the idea is like displacing. So like bourgeois, so that's like bourgeois eschatology because it's like, let's end our own let, let's end ourselves because we're the ones who are causing it. You know, our lifestyles are causing it. But let, you know, people who are living in less resource intensive societies who are actually the people who are experiencing the um, harm of climate change much more than us, allow them to continue humanity. It's, it's an interesting idea. I haven't really thought it through that much. But here's how I would see like... <laughs> Too late, you have two kids. Yeah, here's how I would see like apocalyptic thought at play in the way we talk about climate change. So like, of course, climate change is happening and it is a crisis. We're not, we're not interested in denying that. But I would say <laughs> that like this idea of... So, so the idea of living in privileged times, the idea of needing profits, like being like the prophetic person who warns about the impending end times and and is castigating people to repent and change their ways. I do think that people do lean on that mode a lot of the time, right? It's like we're we're on track to hit four degrees and all this kind of dramatic way of speaking about it. I think that people in there's some kind of attraction of fulfilling that role to people. Um, it doesn't mean it isn't necessary, but like we want to be the ones who cause that in some weird way. No, 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 no. I'm not saying we. No, no, no. I'm saying what we want to be the prophet. Like people want to be the prophet who is, you know, encouraging people to action, to take action, to like address this crisis. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. The yeah, so much so that so a, a book that I, uh, I think we both read some of or the oh, introduction yeah. to like kind of like the. Arguably the hottest, no pun intended, climate change book right now is called The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming um, by David Wallace Wallace, who's a journalist. And his whole introduction is like, I'm not one of these environmentalists. I don't give a shit about, you know, it's not like Jonathan Safran Foer, who's like trying to say, you know, if you're not a vegan, it's like you need to become a vegan for the sake of humanity. And this guy is just saying, he says, I'm not environmentalist. I don't even think of myself as a nature person. Uh, and yeah. he goes through how he's like, you know, a city, city guy, a city yeah. guy. But he, he, and he talks about you st as a journalist, you start covering this stuff and you start reading these things that they seem like fables or allegories. We say small scale sagas playing like fables. A group of Arctic scientists trapped when melting ice isolated their research center on an island populated also by a group of polar bears. But of course, climate change is not an allegory. And so that's like, you know, I mean, there's so many of these books coming out and, and they all know that everyone has already struck that note of like the, the prophet of doom. Yeah. Um, and trying to find a different angle. Then it's also interesting that as far as its relationship to fiction, uh, Michael, uh, he's the guy that Oprah's, he said no to Oprah's book club and it helped make him even more famous. Jonathan and Franzen. And I like him and everyone hates him. Jonathan Franzen. Jonathan Franzen, who's like, you know, really on a crusade to just like make everyone hate him. And I, I kind of love that about him. So he's a big time environmentalist, but he's like, it's too late and we should just protect the animals and like fuck us, kind of. Yeah. That's his take. Yeah. His take is like, don't, he like hates the Audubon Society. He's like, there's no more mitigating. There's just like, you know, pre 
preparing everyone for the post-apocalypse. And everyone to him doesn't necessarily mean humans because, like, fuck humans, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, that's and, and that is something that exists in religious apocalyptic thought, which is the idea isn't that a lot of people are going to be saved. The idea is that pretty much everyone's going to die and go to hell, right? And there's very few people who are saved. I think, like, Luther even said at some point in his life, there's maybe a hundred, some, some very small numbers, like there's a hundred Christians in Germany, right? Those are well, like the Jehovah's Witness also, like they have, they have very specific numbers. Yeah. Also when it will happen and also how many, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. So then, so, so, so that's, that is key. So like the idea, yeah, the, the world is ending and humanity is, is doomed and damned. Like, and yeah, it's just like, it's already, it's already over for us. Yeah. So that kind of fatalism. Then I, I, th- I do think that apocalyptic thought shapes the way we think about climate change in that this, th- what I've been talking about, about signs and portents. So like every single thing that happens now, every natural disaster is now an unnatural disaster. Everything like an earthquake or like a, uh, a hurricane. Hurricanes or... and wildfires are, are the main ones, droughts, things like that. So these are things, I mean, and it is true. I'm not saying it's not true that like, Climate change is causing all of this stuff. I mean, Nell Zink fully... Nicotine. That's the novel. That's the other novel. Oh, Nell Zink. Great. She's written. Yeah. The... <laughs> okay, go on. Sorry. Obviously, climate change is causing all of these things to get worse. I'm not denying that. Or exacerbating, intensifying. But hurricanes happened before climate change. Wildfires happened before climate change. So it it is not the case that every single hurricane is necessarily uh, an an outcome or caused by climate change, right? It's the increased rate of hurricanes and it's the increased intensity of hurricanes that is the 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 effect of climate change. You know what I mean? So like, but but there's a way of like thinking about all kind of events as signs of things to come that is attractive, as we've been saying, um, that that lead people to to think about it that way. But I mean, that's a kind of a minor thing. And I would I would honestly say, you know, my final judgment. We, we don't have to stop, but like my, <laughs> my judgment on like whether it's could, bourgeois yeah. eschatology is like, yes, it is, it is important um, or it is worthwhile to think about the ways in which religious ideas can, can shape the way we think about supposedly uh, secular issues. And there are certain ways in which like there is a phenomenology of, uh, of apocalyptic thought that is like shaping how we talk about climate change but it's not really as intense as i would say it is in other like modern examples like you could say with with revolutionary politics or even what other what other examples well, are. that's yeah. yeah that's why i think that it's important to have this distinction between sort of the liberal non-apocalyptic mode and i think that the reaction to ch- climate change is kind of trapped in the liberal mode that doesn't really have a strong eschatology or a strong apocalypse in the sense of a strong vision um, of of a, a, a different thing, right? Because what is what is the the climate change mitigation argument is like, oh, let's just like do what we do um, in a way that raises the temperatures less. So like basically, if 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 the environmentalist argument wins, we get the world that we currently have, and it doesn't get worse. We, we yeah. don't get this radically different world that's, like, just and, like, you know, whatever. We don't get, like, 72 versions. We don't get, like, clouds and harps <laughs> and shit, right? Yeah. And so the, I think that that fact that 
the and I think that's why there is that um, first of all, like at least in fiction, in some of Margaret Atwood's fiction, um, like I was saying, Nell Zink, this flirtation with well, what would like violent radicalism? Could that, but could the radical strain, which does tap in a secularized way into a sort of apocalyptic worldview, would that offer a way out? But you know, it seems like you know that's very remote and speculative and. You know what I mean? And, and, and I think that climate change isn't the only one. I think that like the fact that like if the liberal order wins, you, you know, you just get like a, a fairer version of the world we have. And for people yeah. who are bourgeois, who are already on the winning side of the world we have, and the only thing that's going wrong for them is that they morally feel bad about that. Like if we're being real, right? You know, it's like, like climate change isn't like fucking up my life. I mean, like, wildfires are happening in LA or whatever. It's not fucking up my life. Yeah. Like the bummer of climate change for, for the liberal bourgeois is that we know kind of its effect on other people, you know, on, on Bangladesh or on like our children's children, quote unquote, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think that w- with, with everything liberal, like to promise people the same thing, if they feel like a, a, a lack of satisfaction produce the and reinforces that lack of satisfaction. And so maybe that's part of the that's why people aren't psyched about Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton or whatever and they're psyched about Bernie. I know that's a very maybe reductive sh- shift, but you know, I'm just trying to get something very yeah, um, digestible is that you know, there is a hunger to uh, like want to flirt with something that could allegedly bring about a completely different organization of the world, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the I mean it's just because because that's the whole thing. So almost what you're saying is it almost sounds like we could use more climate eschatology, um, use more of that apocalyptic I, impulse. And I, and I totally... I, mean, I don't know if it worked. I, I think it might just be like a mismatch of systems, though. Yeah, but so but that that's the whole point for me is like climate change isn't the impending apocalypse. It's something that's happening already in historical time. And it is already mm-hmm. killing people. Um, so like mm-hmm. we are in the middle of the end of the world in that sense. So <laughs> the like, end of the human. I mean, this like rock is going to exist. It might just have like different gases on right, it. Right, for sure. Very different gases. Yes. And so I think there's an impasse. No, I, I think but I, like yeah, a... see, that's what I think. It is happening. We're seeing the dynamics for how it happens. It affects certain groups of people, certain parts of the world much more. And what I think is the problematic kind of what you would call what you could call bourgeois eschatology, middle class apocalypticism is people saying is people thinking that everything's going to collapse. Right. We are living through the We're about to experience the total collapse of civilization because of climate change. And we're not doing anything about it because of blah, 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 bad people, um, certain bad actors. Right. That we need to defeat. Um, and it's and it's a way of organizing social action. I don't necessarily. I mean, we don't really know, <clears throat> obviously, what's gonna what is going to happen. We've seen what's happened so far, which is that like the Western world isn't collapsing, um, and and maybe it will. But there's a kind of certitude that isn't collapsing. I mean, I think it's it? collapsing in the way that climate changes. It's like gradually, you know, not yeah, it's decaying. But I mean, that's like that's my whole thing. <laughs> is like it's decaying. It's entropy. Like, that's the way the world is going to end, right? In, in cosmological terms, in, like, astrophysical terms, that's the way the, the universe is going to end is through entropy, not 
like through some kind of cataclysm. But that doesn't uh-huh. matter. I mean, like, so that's that's the way I see the end of the world, which is honestly like very depressing to me. I don't like thinking about it too much. No, it's super slow though. Um, so it you is don't have super to worry slow. It. It's not gonna. Yeah, we don't have to worry about yeah heat death and like the big chill the, uh, the, and cosmological. The it's gonna be a few trillion years from now. But in any case, this it's it, it's a way of like galvanizing people and and i understand that but i do think that there is there are people and and i would agree with Deanna Havis here people really think that in their lifetime they're going to see the collapse of our civilization because of climate change i don't think i don't agree that that's, that that's necessarily going to happen and i do think they they tend to see something attractive about that because they think it's deserved and and that's the kind of mode mm. apocalyptic mode that that I see at play in in climate change. So that's that's you know, it's so it so uh, the, the apocalyptic mode is like there are damned like the world is divided between the damned and the saved, or at least there's a lot of damned, and something's going to happen soon to like confirm that they are the damned. There's uh, there's different things. Yeah, the majority the, the idea of the majority of people being damned like that's one way of looking at it. like humanity is the cancer. But then there's people who are like capitalism is the cancer and there's certain people who say like oh yeah well these this small number of firms like companies are causing most of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world so all we have to do is deal with them like not dealing with the fact that we are all implicated in in like buying the stuff that these companies uh are involved in and we are causing climate change just as much as them in a certain way but in any case so it's, it's it's not exactly like apocalypticism because there's no idea there's no sense of like the elect living in glory afterwards but it's more like a doomsday yeah. situation but it's still it's still like informed by all these ideas that we've been talking about that, yeah by that morality yeah I'll, okay I'll I'll say one last thing which is my um maybe my final judgment which is like so last it, it's really interesting of I, we, I, yes go ahead final judgment. We had a uh, a teacher a rabbi when I was in uh, high school who taught like a really great segment of a class on messianism, and and it's the the life of that concept in in Jewish literature or you know whatever religious literature, and one thing he pointed to is how strongly kind of anti messianic I mean this is really what defines the Jewish Christian break right is the refusal of the Jews to embrace messianism as kind of the main thing. Like, yeah, there is a Messiah belief, there's an end time belief, but it's like super, you know, not Abstract. a central part of how you organize your faith and your religious life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and and what is a main, you know, what Judaism basically went for was, was mitzvot, was like commandments, was like embodied deeds that you're obligated to perform in the world right now. That's what matters. And what happens afterward doesn't fucking matter so much, you know? Yeah. And so I, maybe that's what Jonathan Franzen's getting at in his, like, annoying way. But, like, I think that that's, uh, you know, I want to put a drop of Judaism into this. Because <laughs> when I was reading fa- Fantasyland and, and kind of learning about the history of all these different um, Protestant movements, and we're not talking just about, like, Waco Branch Davidians. You're talking about, like, main, um, uh, not necessarily main line, but, like, large very impactful denominations that, you know, huge segments of society belong to, you know, including presidents, you know, throughout the 1800s and throughout also, you know, the 20th century. And I was just like, none of the shit would ever happen in Judaism because we don't like give it, like there's no payoff 
to continually reinventing what the end time drama is like because we don't necessarily give that much of a shit about what happens after that drama. So the rapture has this whole choreography of like the saved get zapped up to heaven and then everyone else fights it out here on earth and it's terrible, but the fact that it's terrible is great because we all deserve it and then the saved come down and then Jesus rules forever. That's what this British American preacher told everyone. It's just like, who gives a shit? In, in that, I'm not saying who gives a shit if we're to secularize what I'm saying and talk about climate change or talk about peak oil or whatever. It's not who gives a shit like out of indifference. It's just like, Maybe instead of framing this as a horizon, a thing that's going to happen down the line, which is a, I think it's not a natural human way to frame it. I think it's a culturally specific Protestant way of framing it, that we just frame it in terms of what should everyone be obligated to do? And this is a a, a big hole in liberalism. Liberalism doesn't give people transcendent obligations, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's why people get dissatisfied and reach for more extreme options. Not because they want obligations, but they want transcendence, you know, but... And they uh, want the structure, I mean, they want the structure of history to be revealed to them. There's like a kind of sense of that's a privileged position to be in, right? To make sense of Mm. everything by understanding the ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think you you can try to derive meaning from that or you can derive meaning from not thinking about the structure of time and the structure of history, but like thinking about like the structure of like your relationships. There's a transcendent aspect to your relationships right now with other people in the world. And I think that's like maybe the, the like the Jewish alternative, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, is like find, you know, not necessarily saying that meaning and justice, those are things that exist after time runs out. Cause that, you know, that was an invention of a particular religious thought of Christianity, but it's many religions get by without locating meaning in the eschaton, you know? Fair enough. But at the same time, this all came from Judaism. But I mean, like, we can talk about it more later. I actually, unfortunately, have to run. So we can. No, end, no, we're good. We yeah. can end it there. Plenty. Um, but yeah, until next time. Or yeah, not, because the world's going to fucking end before the next yeah, episode. Yeah, until next time, it may be. This was literally everything. Literally everything. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.